Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Everyone keeping well, splendid. Uh, We got to celebrate baptisms last week. How many of you enjoyed seeing people take that step of faith uh, in Jesus? And just a joy to see that kind of transformation, both young uh, and old. And Teresa talked just for a second about, about giving. When we participate in that, that's the kind of thing we're getting involved in. People's lives being changed because of the message uh, of Jesus, which is just, just to me, just this big uh, joy. We did baptisms last week. Uh, and then this week, I think unrelatedly, I got sick. Uh, I woke up on Tuesday night and just, just didn't feel great at all and then spent the rest of the the night, I I believe the phrase is sometimes talking on the big white phone, Uh, you know, you just, just the the stuff that has to come up and it has to go go somewhere and and, and I had this moment, the reason I'm telling you, giving you way too much information about my personal life is is that we had this moment where, where Aaron texted me and he said, so do you have a backup plan for Sunday? And I said, backup plan for Sunday, it's Tuesday. Like, I'm, I'm gonna be fine tomorrow, let alone, let alone, like, Sunday. And, and, then, and then I wasn't. And I'm like, what has happened to me? I used to recover straight away, and now I'm, I'm not recovering straight away. I went out to do some yard work and came back in 30 minutes later just panting for breath like, like a broken human being. Um, <laughs> And, and, and then the real low point was this. I, I was tired, so I laid down to take a nap and woke up with an injured shoulder. <laughs> I was like, I, I took a nap and woke up injured. And I've talked to a few of you, and you've said very graciously, yeah, welcome to middle age. <laughs> it gets even better after this, trust me. <laughs> like, you got so much to look forward to. And, and so finally, yesterday started to feel a little bit better, uh, because, uh, and, and I was excited because I get to do this with you today. We are doing the last week for a while on the Sermon on the Mount. Think about this as the close of season one. At some point in the new year, we'll move into season two. We'll finish up chapter five today. Day, we'll move into chapter six. It's been like this slow moving process of just going verse by verse, section by section through the words of Jesus in this just incredible 12 minute sermon, 12 minutes to read from start to finish. If you haven't yet read through it, I just encourage you, pick up a text and just read it and just just feel the beautiful flow of Jesus' words here. Last week, uh, as we talked, uh, we came to this conclusion. Uh, Jesus does not always tell us what we have to do. He shows us what we are free to do. As you read Jesus, if all you see is a new, more strict law, you're kind of missing the point of Jesus. Jesus' invitation to us is actually, is this, it's to experience a transformed heart followed by transformed actions. If you just try to work harder doing the things that Jesus says, you will exhaust yourself, you will exhaust everyone around you, you'll end up tired and miserable. All of the things he says are supposed to come from some kind of transformed interior and then this continuing transformed process. I'm gonna show you this graphic for the last time. 
for a few weeks at least. But, but there's this, this, this beautiful invite from Jesus, keep coming closer towards me and as you do experience transformation, keep moving in my direction. And so as we read today, that once again is the encouragement. As you spend time with Jesus, ask him, how are you asking me to step closer to you this week? How are you asking me to respond to this text? It's actually sometimes really easy to think about all the way that Jesus' teaching applies to somebody else. It gives us a really good perspective on what they need to do to live out the way of Jesus. And yet so much, especially in this section of Jesus' words, are deeply personal. In this week and last week's text, and if you didn't catch last week, I encourage you, go watch the baptisms, definitely, but also go back and just, they're so deeply connected. You really can't do one passage without the other, but, but, but they, they, at this point, are now deeply personal. Jesus has moved from a second person plural, like the y'all that we talked about, to, to this you. I'm talking to you. It's for you and you get to process and respond what this beautiful King Jesus has for you. All all through this text, Dallas Willard says this of the Sermon on the Mount, to his, Jesus' eyes, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world. It is a, a world filled with a glorious reality where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control. Though he obviously permits some of it for good reasons to be for a while otherwise than as he wishes. It is a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good because of God and because God is always in it. This is the Jesus we encounter in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to, for a second, put on your imaginary gifting lenses, whatever else, and I want you to do something with me. I want you to, for a second, imagine you're a first century Jewish Jewish person. You've woken up, you've maybe gone for your customary stroll down the small village that you live in. You see some normal things as you walk down the street. You see a baker beginning his process of baking bread. You see see some children running in and out and between houses. You see the potter at his wheel. He's starting to make the things that he'll hope to sell in the market that week. And then you see some other stuff. You see some Roman soldiers gathered in a corner. You see them laugh as a couple of women stumble under the water that they're carrying back from the well. You see the leering looks that they give in their direction. You see a couple of them knock on the door and you see them take away one of the guys you've known for some years and and you begin to wonder, will he just be another person on a Roman cross? And you've been to Jerusalem, so you know that the road to Jerusalem is lined with 6,000 Roman crosses, the the way that the last rebellion was put down. And you start to think about where your people are. You start to think that the Romans have been here for 70 years now. You don't remember a time when they weren't here. Your parents don't remember a time when they weren't here. And your grandparents don't remember a time when they won here. These people have taken over and they're dominating everything. As you continue to walk, a friend stops you for a quick conversation. He, he whispers in your ear that he's joined the, the Dagomen, the Sakari, and he's, he's gonna be part of the next rebellion because this one will be different to all the other rebellions. This one, this one will work. But you just 
you just wonder and you worry about your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids and the, the people that will be left behind. And then as you leave town, you see a crowd beginning to walk up a mountain. The, the latest trendsetter, the latest guy that everybody's following, Jesus of Nazareth is, is doing a teaching and as you arrive, you hear some things that sound pretty compelling. You hear this Jesus talk about the, the, the idea that a whole bunch of people you don't think are blessed are actually blessed in God's kingdom. You hear him talk about things like being salt and light in the world around you. You hear him talk about turning the other cheek. That's when you start to get a little skeptical. He starts to say that when a Roman soldier grabs you and you are forced to walk one mile, you should offer to go a second. And he's losing you quick. And then he says this, I tell you, love your enemies. And when he says enemies, you instantly have a group of people that come to mind. Because the Romans were they, right? They are the enemies. Love your enemies. Jesus had you at love, and he lost you at enemies. Love your enemies is in itself a ridiculous phrase. And as he's talking about it, you, you have a bunch of questions that probably come to your mind. Even if I wanted to do this, Jesus, how can I do this? How can I do this? Why should I do this? And what would it even achieve? What, what would it even do? I want you to take note of those questions. They're questions that we'll come back to. Here they are again. Uh, how can I do this? Why should I do this? And what would it even achieve? Jesus' teaching on love your enemies that we'll wrestle with today is probably the standout thing that he says in amongst this brilliant sermon on the mount. Stand out, I mean, because it's basically unique. Now if you search or Google like enemies, you'll find all of these different quotes about loving enemies in some kind of form, some kind of famous person that says something like love your enemies. Until Jesus came along, nobody was saying love your enemies. There's other things that Jesus said that build on other teachers. There's other things that he says that have people that said something similar, but this one, nobody's saying this. Love your enemies is a unique idea, which before we get to the text, requires that we clear some groundwork, because maybe the question that comes with that is then, is Jesus a pacifist? Is Jesus a pacifist? And this has been a question that has caused the church to wrestle for a couple of millennia now. For, for the first 300 years of the church, the answer was almost completely yes. Jesus is a pacifist. Can a Christian do military service for 300 years? The answer is no. Then for 1,700 years, the answer has been almost universally no, Jesus isn't a pacifist, and yes, a Christian can enter into something like military service. There's a couple of quotes here, though, that show, that how, show it's how it's been wrestled with over the last 100 years, and I want you to catch the tension in responding personally to, to something that Jesus says. What I want to make sure you don't hear is this. That, that, I'm, that I'm in this being like anti-military or anti-veterans or something like that. that. That's not the purpose at all. And I'll actually explain in a second why that, that element is deeply personal to me as well. But watch how about 100 years ago, 
some people started to wrestle again with whether Jesus was calling them to a life of pacifism. These are two letters written by a couple of Christians to each other during World War II, both of whom responded differently. First letter is this. We love our enemies. We love those against whom we send our armies. We love not, however, their deeds and their beliefs. If the enemy should win, would not we be denied all privilege of worship? Would not missionary enterprises be completely stopped? Would not the institutions of love, orphanages, hospitals, homes for the aged, schools be demolished and replaced by state-dictated institutions? Would not we be prevented from even objecting to war? So one of the followers of Jesus in this scenario comes from this perspective, like the the ends justifies the means, we've got to do something to rise up against this great enemy that we all share. Now check the second letter, different uh, viewpoint. You know, Mr. Johnson, Christ did set a tremendously different, difficult cause for his followers to take. Suppose he were here now walking along with you and me, suggesting to us a course of action in days such as these. Truthfully, can you conceive of him giving his okay to your taking the life of some man, perhaps a German or Japanese, some man that he died to save? Can you conceive of him alongside you in an airplane, dropping tons of explosives on helpless people, uh, helpless women and children, even though your intention is to hit only munitions plants? Would he man the trigger on them occasionally for you and show you how to do it more accurately? Do you see how two people have taken this text and wrestled with it on a deeply personal level? Until about 100 years ago, maybe 200 years ago, when the Anabaptist movement started to arise, when the Peace Church is started to arise, nobody was really taking this second pathway. And what I would suggest is that when we look at the teachings of Jesus, this is one of those areas where you get to wrestle with personally. I warned you at the start of the Sermon on the Mount, there would be things that depending on your political persuasion, depending on where you found yourself, there would be things that Jesus said that you didn't like that you found difficult to handle, that didn't seem to make sense. And, and regardless of who you are, everyone will have moments like that. My, my family has this actually beautifully, I think, proud tradition of serving in the military forces. My great, great uncle uh, was a really good friend of J.R. Tolkien and served with him in World War I. If you know me and my love for Tolkien, the fact that it's taken me three years to mention that to you shows that I was deeply committed to only saying it when it made sense because I'm very proud of that fact. Um, my great, great uncle and Tolkien, good pals. But, but here's a couple of people that are a little closer to me in lineage. This is my grandfather and this is my great uncle, both passed away now. Both of them served in World War II. My great uncle was a bombsite guy for a a bomber plane that went out to missions in Italy, in Germany. He got the Medal of Valor for for the things that he did in World War II. My granddad was a pacifist. He went into service in World War I. He went into the medical corps and served there and served without a weapon. Both of them wrestled with how you followed the teachings of Jesus at a time where the world seemed like it was going to hell in a handbasket. Both of them wrestled with Jesus, what do you have for me in this situation? Both of them loved Jesus deeply. 
My great uncle died essentially in the pulpit. He preached his last sermon, walked off stage, sat in the pew and passed away. He was a passionate Pentecostal preacher. My, my grandfather ran camps for kids. He was the guy that got them up early for 5.30 ocean swims. They both were passionate about how people could follow Jesus in different ways and yet both of them had to wrestle with this. And so Jesus constantly pushes this. He constantly asks you to respond to his teaching. He continually uses this, this second person singular you and says, what will you do? What am I asking you to do? Jesus teaches this idea of love our enemies, or as some commentators have called it, enemy love, which I love because the, the term enemy love, it actually lands it firmly where it belongs in, in a group that we call oxymorons. The very term in Greek, enemy, means hated or the one who hates. That's the root term. It has this language of hate. And then to put love alongside it, well, it, it just doesn't make sense, right? Oxymorons are things that don't make sense. There's these examples, act naturally. You're acting, but you've been natural. You're acting, but you've been natural about it. I don't know. Clearly confused, you're like clear. But, but well confused, Microsoft works, it's Microsoft, so it doesn't work. Government organization, for you government workers out there, temporary tax increase, it's never as temporary as it sounds. An enemy lover, all oxymorons, all things that actually, you like, those don't belong together. And so as we get into Jesus' teaching, remind yourself that at times it will feel confusing, unnatural, at times it will feel like, does this even fit? Does this even work? There'll be, there should be a load of questions about how we respond. And so, to the text. Matthew chapter five, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you needed some homework for Thanksgiving, go and be perfect. <laughs> Job done, thank you. <laughs> you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. As he has for his six commands that we've wrestled with over the last six weeks, Jesus begins with this phrase, you have heard that it was said. He's referencing perhaps an old law, but certainly a saying in the modern society, a, a phrase that people have picked up. Sometimes it's very accurate and it really is almost an, an exact copy of the original law within Old Testament scripture. Sometimes it's a modern take on that. It's a slight twist on it. In this case, it's the twist, because the second part of this, Jesus, or the Old Testament never says. There's no explicit command to hate your enemy, but certainly, love your neighbor is an exact quote. In Leviticus chapter 19, one of the first passages a young Jewish boy would memorize, it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's designed to be an inclusive term. 
or an exclusive term, sorry. It's designed to be a group term. It's designed to remind you to love those people that are around you, those people that are like you. There's nothing Jesus says that implies that he disagrees with this. He sometimes had a disagreement with some of these sayings, but here, he agrees completely with it. He actually takes love your neighbor as one of his major statements, one of his major descriptions of the kingdom of God. What he does seem to disagree at times with is is how we would define neighbor. There was language that suggested let's make neighbor as as small a group as possible. And Jesus says, no, 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 let's make it as big as possible. There was an idea that a neighbor was just somebody who was like you. And Jesus says, no, the neighbor is one who is not like you. It's anyone you come into contact with. So love your neighbor was something that a Jewish person was aware of as a phrase. And then, hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. And this was a universally accepted principle in almost all the ancient Near East and the societies that evolved from it. Of course that's what you did with hate your en- or with your enemy. It was in the definition itself. So here's a couple of proverbs from the ancient Near East. Some of them will be familiar. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Both of them that reflected on just how dangerous an enemy was and how much you needed to be aware of them and eventually get to a point where hopefully you could destroy them and you would be the one that survived. But also very common in, in Israel in the first century and beforehand was this idea that you were especially supposed to hate God's enemies. This is Psalm 139, a beautiful psalm that some of you will have on walls somewhere, you'll have written down in journals. This, this beautiful psalm that talks about how God knew you before you were born, how God loves you and, and shaped you in your mother's womb. And, and later on it says this, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Passages like this are all over Old Testament scripture. And yet one of the beautiful things we're invited to do as we read Jesus is to read it again with Jesus-centric lenses. It's like literally he gives us Jesus' glasses to read Old Testament scripture and, and reflect on it differently. Because his statement later will be, will be very much, no, no, this God, he loves his enemies. Jesus talks about a relationship to our neighbor and our enemy and says that the relationship should actually be surprisingly similar. Now, now what I would say here is this. His language of enemy is intentionally broad, perhaps because you and I, if we're honest, have the capacity to develop enemies almost anywhere. We have the capacity to develop enemies almost anywhere. In actual fact, sometimes it's the people that have been closest to you that become enemies, that become the very worst enemies. It's the relationships that have been closest that become fractured, that become the most toxic. Sometimes this is just an amusing aspect and sometimes it's, it's a really serious aspect. I, I want for a second to ask, how many, people have you, how many of you are road tripping for Thanksgiving? Anyone out there taking a drive? Some people. How many of you are doing it with children? Okay, so, so you know here, right, how quickly people close to you can, can become enemies. I found these beautiful little pictures. My dad, day one of the road trip. My dad on day five of the road trip. My parents fighting on the road trip. Me who instigated it. 
And then this last one I couldn't find, so I had to recreate, and I recreated it with, with my wife and I. Uh, Preparing for a road trip, reminding ourselves we are not enemies. <laughs> the children are the enemies. <laughs> There's this entry into these parts of life that, 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 that just, in a humorous way, remind us that actually enemies can, can appear from almost anywhere. And yet, the beautiful gift of Jesus' language, the beautiful gift of the broadness of his term enemy, and what he requires us to do for those enemies in the next verse. It actually reminds us of this. The beautiful gift of Jesus' teaching is that it requires love for those close to you even when they appear as an enemy. It's really tempting for us to think of enemies as distant and far away, and people we love as close. And yet, in actual fact, we know that the opposite can be true. Sometimes those closest to us become the greatest enemies. Sometimes we might say, like, for a moment, you know what it felt like? I drove to church with an enemy. It felt like we're just constantly going back and forth. It's constant bickering at the moment. Sometimes you can be in a business partnership, and it just feels like something's off now. It's like, no, now we're enemies. I think one of the reductionist things we like to do is we like to talk about enemies in these big group terms, like, like the way that we talked about the Romans for the Israelites at the beginning of this, and yet, yet it can be that, and yet it can also be deeply personal. Jesus makes sure that we know that when he moves from this idea of, of you've heard it said, hate your enemy, singular, to in the next verse, but love your enemies, plural. He makes it big, and he makes it broad. Verse 44, 45, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Just for a moment, I just want you to read that and realize how unique it is and appreciate the God who came from heaven to tell us that, who came here to remind us that no, the constant warfare, the constant back and forth is not what he designed us for. Love your enemies is unique and refreshing and exciting. Jesus says, love your enemies. The writer G.K. Chesterton says this, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies, probably because generally they are the same <laughs> people. And yet neighbor is a singular term. Love your neighbor reminds you that you need to love the person across the street who drives you nuts, the person that you come into contact with every day. An enemy is this big term, reminds you to love people that may be more distant than that physically, but actually impact you much more in everyday life. Love your enemies is what Jesus asks us to do. However we respond to the idea of pacifism, however we respond to that, just like my uncle, great uncle and my, my grandfather wrestled personally, each of them was called to find ways to love their enemies. And so now to the questions, because the question I have is this, how can I do this? It, it catches us off guard because it is so unnatural. We read it and appreciate it in, in new ways because we take it and we say, how? Like, it doesn't make sense. It's an oxymoron. It's, it's nuts, right? How do you love an enemy? As I said, the language is very much like, in the definition, it's to hate. And now Jesus is saying to love. 
And what I love about Jesus' teaching here, what blows my mind about his teaching here is how he moves from this big, life-changing, eternal idea and becomes very practical. I think most of us that, that, that find it our calling to, to do this thing here, we struggle between like being like up there in the clouds and also being practical and giving advice. And some people do one great and not the other, and some people do the, the other one great and, and not the other. And yet Jesus is brilliant in his ability to talk about these big concepts and then come down to this deeply practical level. And he does that as a gift for us here. Because when we say, how on earth am I supposed to love my enemies, Jesus says this, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Remember them in your prayers. When you're in conversation with your father, talk to him about them. Talk to him about your enemies. And when we think about what that means, we recognize it's challenging, but perhaps doable. Pray for the one that steals your newspaper every morning the one who stole your car, the one who stole your wife or husband, the one who stole your hopes and dreams, the contractor who didn't turn up, the one that didn't finish the work and who you suspect cracked the mainline sewage pipe, the neighbor who moves furniture at 2 a.m., the neighbor who borrows your tools and returns them broken, the neighbor whose dogs bark all night and the neighbor who thinks cats are better than dogs. <laughs> the ex, all of them, including the one who gaslit you, and emotionally wounded you, the bully at school, the bully at work, the employee who ran off with the profits, the past employer who never sent the last check, the employer who underpays and undervalues the work, the employee who turns up late and goes through the motions, the church that you used to attend and maybe the one you still do, the Democrats, the Republicans, the election stealers, the capital stormers, the Palestinians, the Israelis, the people on the sidelines, the ones who won't pick a side, George III, Benedict Arnold, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and anybody with the first name president that you think did a bad job. The British, the Russians, the Chinese, and anyone who you don't believe belongs on the list because they belong on the list. That's the compelling thing about Jesus teaching here when he talks about our enemies and then, then asks that we pray for those that persecute them. Yes, he gives us this opportunity to respond to this like personal challenge, but then he gives, this, them this, uh, gives us this command that says, no, but you, you do pray for them. You pray for them as hard as that might be to grasp. You pray for them. What Jesus says is this, that your enemies list and your prayer list should be interchangeable that the diagram, the Venn diagram of enemies and prayer, they should fully overlap. There is nobody who is excluded from that in Jesus' mind. Now I'm guessing most of you don't Richard Nixon style actually have an enemies list, <laughs> but I kind of wish you did. I kind of wish you did. Because often what we find is enemies lurk hidden in the back of our mind. We don't even realize how we feel about them. But when they're down in list form, to simply cross out enemies at the top and write prayer at the top is actually the easiest way of beginning to obey what Jesus calls us to do here. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So the person that perhaps comes to mind now, 
the person who is most deeply challenging in your life, the people group that are most deeply challenging in your life right now, they belong on the list. Perhaps it's the person you drove with. Perhaps it's the person you live with. Perhaps it's the person you do business with. Perhaps it's a political group. Perhaps it's a foreign power. Whoever it is, they, they it seems, belong on this list. And perhaps you're asking now the question that I might ask is, isn't there an escape clause from this? Is there a get out clause that enables us to not do this thing that is a first tiny step? It's Jesus' gift and yet it's, it's still a difficult step. How might we get out of this? And there is a get out clause and I've used it constantly and it's toxic. It's not how we're called to live but there is a get out clause that we often use. In The Fiddler on the Roof, there's this brilliant conversation between two of the characters. Mendel says this, Rabbi, may I ask you a question? The rabbi says, certainly, my son. Mendel says, is there a proper blessing for the, the czar, the person that was, had conquered and ruled over this country? The rabbi said, yes, a blessing for the czar? Of course, may God bless and keep the czar far away from us. <laughs> there's ways to pray for people without affection. There's ways to pray, on an obvious sense, to pray that God would bring them to judgment, that God would hurt them, that they would find themselves caught up in a tsunami somewhere, that a freak tidal wave would come and grab them and, uh, and wipe them out in the ocean. But that's not even what I'm talking about. There's a way to pray for an enemy that says, I refuse to let affection grab my heart. For those of you who've been around church for a while, you're probably aware of the fact that the Greek language has multiple words for love. It doesn't just have our one-term love, it has a few of them. There's eros, which is quite often described as sexual love, but in actual fact, no, it's, it's broader than that. It's the love of affection. Uh, phileo, somewhat similar, but a bit beyond eros. It's this slightly different, like the, the love of a brother is a good one there. Storge is family love. It's, it's, it's like honor, and it's all those different elements. And uh, agape is this divine love. And if you want to learn more about that, C.S. Lewis has a brilliant book called The Four Loves, which unpacks every single one of them. They all mean love, but the question is, do all mean affection? And my get out clause at times has been this. When praying for my enemies, I've been able to say, aren't I called, them to, called to love them with the love of God? And that doesn't mean affection. That means like I can be distant from them. I can just pray God's will on their life or something like that. I can, I can keep my affections back. I don't have to feel anything in particular for them. And yet what we see in scripture is this, that the love of God is deeply affectionate. Look at this interchange between Jesus and a young man who's asking questions about following him in Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, why must I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. And know the, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your mother and your father. Teacher, he declared, I've kept all these since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. 
At this, the man's face fell. He went away very sad because he had great wealth. Jesus has this interaction with a person who will continue to be an enemy of God, who will not follow him, not choose that pathway. And yet what we see from Jesus is this deep compassion and affection and longing for someone who casts himself in the end as an enemy. What I'm not saying here is this, that instantly you should try or I should try and feel this affection for someone who's cast themselves as our enemy. But I do love this Dale Bruner quote. We should pray until we feel something of God's love and affection for our enemies. This takes a miracle. And wonderfully, God is good at miracles. God is good at miracles. I'm not telling you how to feel, but I am saying open your heart to the possibility that God may deeply change your affection for the person that right now you say this person is an enemy. That's the how that Jesus gives us. It's the first step, pray for them. Second question, why? Why should I do this? And helpfully, Jesus gives us an answer there. A gracious answer because he hasn't given a reason for any of his other commands. He simply said, I tell you, and you choose, are you gonna follow me or are you not going to follow me? But here he does. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. These people listening to Jesus lived in an agrarian culture. They lived in a place where, where they relied on rain and, and depending on how much rain you got, you saw that as a blessing from God. Now, I, this is foreign to me. I'm working hard to understand it because I grew up in a country that, that has lots of rain. There's a reason we invented these things. And, and when we moved here, my wife said, can we buy the kids some Wellington boots? And I said, why? Um, there seems no purpose for them here. But these are all people that, that, that lived and died by the rain. And yet, what do you notice about how the, the, the climate is worldwide? Does it depend on who's good or bad? This is a map of the places that have the most, has the most rain and places that have no rain. Can you see any connection between the nations that you think do a good job of following the way of Jesus and nations that don't? A connection between the ones that have the most Christians and the ones that don't? There's no connection there. How about a map of the United States? Pick your favorite state. Is there a connection between the ones that have the most churches, the ones that have perhaps the most Christians, and then all the states that, that do the best to vote along Christian lines? Is there any connection between who gets rain and who doesn't get rain, who gets sun and who doesn't get sun? There's no connection. That's exactly what Jesus is telling us. This God, he allows the sun to shine on those that are righteous and those that aren't righteous. He brings rain on those that are righteous and on those that aren't righteous. Fascinatingly, or funnily enough, when I moved to Colorado and was struggling to deal with the lack of rain, God gave me this beautiful verse from Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And I deeply needed to hear that in this moment. When Jesus gives his reason for why we should do this, his reason is actually very simple, and it's this. We do it because it's what our family do. 
He says if you wanna live a life as children of God, this is how the children of God behave because this is how their father behaves. If you've ever lived in a house or have owned a house that has family rules, you know exactly what we're talking about here. One of our family rules is no lies. It doesn't always get enforced or followed particularly well, but we've tried to instill this principle with the kids that they will get into less trouble for telling the truth than they will for us to find when we find out they were lying later on. Still hasn't stopped some of them from, you know, at least trying to see if they can get away with it and not get into any trouble at all. But family rules is a good insight into the reason Jesus gives. We do it because it's what our family do. We do it because this is how the children of God operate and the children of God operate that way because this is how God himself operates, who brings rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In the next couple of verses, Jesus goes back to being deeply provocative for the people that are first listening to him. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? He picks two groups of people, both obnoxious to Jewish listeners, and said even they do the thing that you say is the standard. Isn't there a higher standard for you? Isn't there another ask for you? When, we're at, when we ask how, Jesus says pray for them. When we ask why, Jesus says because it's what your father does and it's what your family do. And then there's that final question. What difference does this make? Why would I love an enemy? What would it do? What would the purpose be? Does it make any difference at all? And the answer to that is yes. And the reason that I know that is you. The reason I know that is you and is me. When we turn to Romans chapter five, verse 10, we read this. We were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. Now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? This beautiful, perfect God of the universe loved you when you were an enemy and turned an enemy into something else. We're not talking about one broken human being trying to love another broken human being. We're talking about the divine being full of goodness, full of purity, who's able to love people like you and I to invite us into his story and to transform us from enemies into friends. That's the reason we do it. That's the reason we know it works because we've already seen it and we've already experienced it. You were loved before you were lovable. You were loved before you were healthy or whole. And this God of the universe invited you into friendship anyway. The, the last week we talked briefly about Dr. Martin Luther King. One of the stories that I love about him is this moment where he finds out that his house has been bombed and he goes running over there with the mob that have kind of like worked, the, the, the people that he's working with in the protest, and they want to go and, and invict justice on someone else. They ta start talking about how uh, these people are their enemies and they need to bring justice about right now. And I love Martin Luther King because he reminds me, well, he is a preacher, right? And he reminds me uh, of me because he, he sees his house on fire and he thinks this is a great sermon illustration. And he jumps up on the front porch and he begins to preach. And this is what he says. There is a final reason I think that Jesus says love your enemies. It is this, 
that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person, just keep loving them and they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning, they react with guilt feelings and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period, but just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love you see, it is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. This is why Jesus says love. We know this worked because it worked on us. It transformed me and it transformed you. The writer Amy Jo Levine says this, to love our enemies as ourselves, which first requires that we in fact love ourselves, a point that cannot be taken for granted, is not easy. It means praying for them because they are made in God's image and likeness, no matter how deformed that image has become. God forbid that we would descend into that same deformity by rejoicing in the suffering of others, even those that we would call the enemy. Even those that we would call an enemy. When we respond to Jesus' teaching and we say how, Jesus says pray for them. When we ask why, he says because this is what your family do. And we ask, does it make any difference at all? He says, yes, it transformed you. It took you for this person, from this person that was broken and wounded, that was an enemy of God, and turned you into a follower of Jesus. Jesus, as we respond to this teaching, would you start to speak to our hearts? Maybe there's some names that have come to mind. Some people we see as enemies. Maybe there's some ways that we've responded that you're now convicting us about, that you're challenging us on. Maybe we have a physical list, and maybe it's just a mental list. Maybe there's a concrete action that we've felt was done to us, and maybe there's not. Maybe there's a concrete thing we've done to others, and maybe there's not. But wherever we are, the, the, the command to love our enemies is unique. It's groundbreaking, but also challenging. It goes against everything that we instinctively know. Love our enemies. How? You tell us to pray for them. Why? You tell us because it's what you do, what our family does. Does it make a difference? You say, yes. Haven't you felt the difference in your own heart? Haven't you felt what it is for me to love you? And haven't you felt that turn your heart towards love for me? Perhaps the thing that we need most in this room is a renewed sense of this love that this God has for us. He loved us when we were still enemies. He loved us when we were distant. He loved us when we were broken and wounded. And even those times now where we get distant, disappear, put up barriers between him and us, he loves us still. He constantly breaks them down, constantly restores us, constantly draws us in. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me, friends. Chris and Matt are gonna lead us in this song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And for a second or a few minutes, what I'm gonna invite you to do is to turn your eyes towards him 
and feel his overwhelming love for you exactly as you are. And that, I believe, will give you the courage to go into this week and choose to obey the teaching of Jesus. To begin to pray for those you consider enemies. To do it because it's what your family do. To see the same transformation you've seen in your own heart. And when it happens, I'd love to hear the stories of how God has transformed you. Because I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen because I've seen you transformed when Jesus has loved you. So for a moment, turn your eyes towards him. If you're wrestling with a particular relationship and you'd love someone to pray with you, if you're wrestling with how hard this is, our prayer team will be around. I'd also love to pray with you. Let's just take a moment to gaze on Jesus, the perfect example of enemy love. If God is working in your life through this ministry, Join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.